Let's open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. Let's all stand as we read this together. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Let's pray. And Father, again I pray that you would open our eyes to these glorious statements about our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that light is come. Thank you, Father, that you are a God who delights to reveal truth. And I pray, Lord, you would continue to ground us and settle us. Help us, Lord, through being mighty in the Scriptures, to be equipped, furnished for every good work, rock solid and immovable, not tossed about with every wind of doctrine. Thank you, Father, for your great love towards us. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, tonight's going to be a little bit different of a message. It's not going to be an exposition of those nine verses we just read. I'm actually mainly going to be focusing on one word in this passage, and that is the word light. Light has got to be uh, one of the most easily recognized symbols anywhere in the Word of God. You know, there's many that are... Uh, you could say are debatable. Uh, there are some that are uh, often misrepresented, uh, but it's really hard to miss this one. And ever since that first declaration, when God says, let there be light, all the way to the city that descends from God out of heaven, which needs no candle or the sun, light has been used to represent things concerning God. It's, been, uh, it's used to characterize the prophets of God. The last, technically, of the Old Testament prophets was John the Baptist, who was a burning and a shining light. Light is used to refer to the people of God, to the coming Messiah, to the Word of God itself, and then all three members of the Trinity. Everywhere we see the Shekinah glory cloud, the, the cloud which manifests God's presence, and every time that shows up, the intense light is always prominent. In Genesis 15, he was a burning lamp. With Israel in the wilderness, it was a pillar of fire. The glory cloud was over the tabernacle and lit up the sky at night. Sometimes I'm not a big fan of artwork uh, depicting Bible events because a lot of it's uh, inaccurate. But one of my favorite paintings I've seen depicts that very thing. It shows the tabernacle in the wilderness at night. And all the camps are situated around it. And there's this pillar of fire just ascending out of it. It's a tremendously vivid picture. In fact, it's in the house of some believing Jews that we know. So when we're over there for the Passover or Hanukkah, <clears throat> we see it all the time. And it always sticks in my mind when I think of the glory cloud over the tabernacle. Uh, it was true on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Christ's light was like the light of the sun. It was terrifying to look at. And by the way, we talked about it some this morning, but that's why Satan masquerades as an angel of light. That's why he depicts and, 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 and masquerades and deceives in the spiritual realm. I don't know who's credited with making the statement that Satan is never more satanic than when he carries a Bible. It's a very true statement. It, you know, as he prepares the world for the coming Antichrist, to keep in mind the main tool he's going to use is not atheism. Really, if you look at world history, atheism has a pretty short lifespan. It came to prominence about 150, 60 years ago. And it's going to be gone by the time of the Antichrist. The prevailing religion at that day is not atheism, which by the way is a religion. The prevailing religion is worship of the Antichrist. I think it's interesting, the one who comes as the Satan incarnate isn't saying there is no God. He's a deceiver in the spiritual realm. He wants people with the wrong God. Now the passage we just read... If you look at just verses uh, 5 through 9, we see that light is mentioned six different times just in those five verses. But I want to begin by asking this question. Here's quite a discussion. What is light? Let's say here's David. He's walking down the street this week. total stranger comes up to him and says, what is light? Well, we're not used to being asked that question. It's a strange question. Uh, for one thing, it's such a universally recognized concept that we're not used to having to try to explain it, right? But the other side of that is we're not really sure uh, what kind of definition people are looking for. Do they want a working practical definition? Or do they want to know what it is in its essence? Do they want a strict Definition, and we tend to explain things a lot of times by what they do uh, more so than what they are. We, we like to explain things a lot of times by their effect and not their essence. And the Bible does that in a lot of places. The famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. It really doesn't tell you what love is. It tells you what love does. It shows the effect of it. And that's how it explains it. You see the same thing in the faith chapter, Hebrews 11. It defines faith, not necessarily by what it is, but by its offshoot. It, it defines faith by what it produces. Now that's a valid definition, but it is a helpful mental exercise to consider what a certain thing is at its core. What makes it tick? Alright, so scientifically speaking, who can explain what light is? There's one for the scholars seated here. That's a tough one, isn't it? Well, light is the radiation emitted by electrons when they lose energy. It's transported in massless particles called photons. And it travels at wind waves at a constant speed of 186,282 miles per second. That's a technical, scientific definition of what light is. We kind of like it better, I say, is what lights up the room, right? That makes a little more sense to us because that's what light does. But here's what I want to do. I want to ask this question in the spiritual realm. Spiritually speaking, we read about light in this passage. What is light? How do you define that spiritually? Is it morality? Is it goodness? Is it 
righteousness? Is it love? Well, none of those are adequate enough. Those are describing what light produces, how it behaves, but not what it is. We see really a very key definition here in verse 4. Here's what it says. In Him, talking about Christ, in Him was life. And what was it that was the light? The life was the light of men. So defined here in this passage, the light in the spiritual realm is synonymous with the life of God. It's synonymous with eternal life. And you could follow that through this passage. In Him was life. The life was the light of men. And the life of God shineth in the darkness. Verse 7. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the life of God. Verse 8. He, John, was not that life of God, but was sent to bear witness of that life of God. You know, when Adam sinned, he made himself spiritually incompatible with God. It was like the light switch in his soul just flicked off. And he was in darkness even though he was still dwelling underneath the blazing rays of the sun. He had entered total blackness because he was now distant from the life of God. And then, of course, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world... He's not merely some ticket to a heavenly world. He's not a leader of some new, some new and exciting religion. He's saying, I'm the solution to the sin problem, to the blackness. He says, I am the light. In other words, I am the fullness of the Godhead. I am the fullest expression of the life of God. I am the light. But then he says, I am the light of the world. That's I am the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's the life of God manifested within a fallen cosmos. That's God stooping down to shine a light so bright that it cannot be missed. I think it is absolutely critical that as New Testament Bible students especially, we understand the difference between heaven and eternal life. And I, I know I've touched on this before. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say, I hope this never happens, but we're sitting here in a meeting. All of a sudden you hear a funny sound, and somebody in the middle, they stand up, they clutch their throat, and they fall over. And everybody rushes around them. One person asks the question, are they alive? Someone else says, well, they live in Montana. And you'd go, what does that have to do with anything? This person's physically either alive or dead. What does where they are have to do with anything? You see, Montana is a place, whether or not they're alive or dead, is a state of being. That really is the difference between heaven and eternal life. Many want to make heaven the big issue. Heaven is a place. Salvation is not about merely transferring citizenship from a dying planet to a living city. That's part of it. But the fundamental difference isn't one of shifting location. It's shifting state of being. It's God indwelling man. It's having the light turned on. The life that was the light of men. And that's why Jesus said, by the way, ye must be 
born again. You know, if you study the book of 1 John, I'm not going to get sidetracked on this, but the central issue with 1 John, many quote John, 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Now, if we interpret that correctly, eternal life not being heaven, but being God in you, here's what that book is answering, what the question is asking. How do I know that I am indwelt by God himself? That's what's being asked. He's saying, I've written these things to you that believe to know that God dwells in you, that you have life, the life that was the light of men. That's why those ten major evidences are given throughout that book. These are things that God produces uh, when he moves into human life. Now we're just going to take a moment and look at some general principles of physical life. Some of these you know, some maybe you haven't heard in a while, but there's some tremendous parallels uh, with the spiritual realm. Okay, first of all, light travels incomprehensible distance at astonishing speeds. Most of us know that. Can you even picture a light year in your mind, honestly? I mean, I, I, 186,282 miles per second. That's seven times around the equator of the earth and a little over the snap of a finger. And it's traveling that speed for 365 days. We can't even comprehend that. By the way, you know, evolutionists always say there's all kinds of evidence for evolution. I don't agree with them. I don't think there is. But if they have any real leg to stand on, it would be on the question of starlight and time. Most creationists would say, well, such and such stars is a, a million light years away. To which they would say... Well, then how'd the light get here without all the time? Now, of course, we know God stretched out the heavens. He could put the light right in transit. He created a world that was mature and plants that were mature and Adam that was mature. But in my opinion, that's the best argument they have. And I don't even think that's a very good one. But you know, someday, Christ is going to stand up from His seat. And there's two major events coming. One is the rapture of the church where He comes in the clouds. And one is His second coming approximately seven years later. And both of those are explained in terms of light. The rapture is the mo in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Boom! And then of course the second coming is explained in Matthew 24. Like the lightning, the lightning from the east, flashes to the west. Instantaneous. He's going to descend out of the heavens like a, like a flash of light. Secondly, light is always moving. You know, it's interesting, Job 38.18. Here's what it says. God's asking this question. And by the way, it's questioned by my count, number 15 and 16 out of 60 questions. You may debate that. You can count them yourself. But God asks all these questions to Job. And here's what two of them are. Where is the way where, now pay attention to the terms, where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? So he depicts light as being in a way, and darkness having a place. That is a tremendous and profound scientific truth written very simply thousands of years before mankind was privy to this information. That's exactly scientifically what, ha what happens. Uh, light is in a way, it's never stagnant, it's always moving, but darkness is in a place. And of course, just like divine light, it's never inactive. 
even when it appears to be. It's always convicting, drawing, illuminating, guiding, comforting, and restraining, especially now, which is why the world doesn't totally fly apart. Thirdly, the visible light, of course, is made up of seven different colors. How many of you children know the seven colors of the rainbow? Roy G. Biv, right? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Okay, it's made up of seven different colors, and of course, seven's the number of completion. Now, what does it take to separate the colors of light? It takes a prism, which basically causes the light to travel all the different wavelengths, travel through to different speed, and it slows them down to different speeds, and it disperses the seven different colors. Uh, think of the first rainbow. Never rained in the world. Noah gets off the ark and it gets that backdrop of sin and suffering and death in a changed world. You have light shining through all the darkness and sin and sorrow and dispersing. It's just like what happens with us. Our trials come. The light of God comes upon us. It's like it causes His individual attributes to stand out in all their glory. God's attributes are all one. But in our particular trial, it may be goodness, it may be grace, it may be love that stands out individually like its own color. But it's difficulty that often causes that to happen. <coughs> Fourthly, light has a dual nature. And scientists tell us light behaves both simultaneously as a stream of particles and a wave of energy. It follows both of those patterns. And just like Christ, the light of the world possesses a dual nature. Two natures permanently linked together. The infinite clothed in the finite. That's absolutely astounding. Fifthly, I find this one interesting. Life, light is self-sustaining. You ever wondered how a beam of light traveling across the universe millions of light years away, how it doesn't just run out of energy? Why doesn't it just dissipate? Why doesn't it just vanish? I mean, what, how does it keep going? <clears throat> well, it was in the mid-19th century, the Scottish mathematical physicist, James Clark Maxwell, discovered that a changing electrical field produces a magnetic field, and a changing magnetic field produces an electrical field, and that light is made of both. So literally, it has these two alternating fields that are constantly generating its own energy. So light literally can travel infinite distance through the universe if given the space to do so and the time, unimpeded, undiminished. It just keeps right on going because it essentially is its own energy. <coughs> Excuse me. Just like one statement of Scripture. Applied by the Holy Spirit, written thousands of years ago, still travels through with undiminished energy. Just like the life of Christ is like a laser beam from heaven, undiminished in glory. The one exception is when light encounters a substance it cannot penetrate, like the human heart, right? That begins to stop the process. Light has anti aging properties. Now this is a brain stretcher, most of you run across this, but it's hypothesized that 
let's say uh, let's let's say Benjamin takes off tomorrow uh, for Alpha Centauri. Okay, and that's what five light years five light years away roughly, and so his round trip's about ten light years. Hypothetically, it is said that if he could travel the speed of light, which nothing with any mass can do, it's totally hypothetical. But if he could travel the speed of light, to him it would be instantaneous. When he got back, all of us would be ten years older, and he wouldn't have aged a lick. Quite a process. The closer you approach the speed of light, the more time relatively slows down for the person traveling at that speed. So uh, technically, now, I mean, that, that, that's a, a brain-stretching process, I'll admit. It's very, very complicated. I don't know that I completely understand it. But when we stand in the full blaze of God's glory and behold Him as He is dwelling fully in the light, no more aging for us either, right? No more heading for death. And then, of course, in the account of creation, there's three sources of light mentioned. There's the sun, which is universal, constant, predictable. It outshines every other object in the sky a thousandfold. It gives warmth. It gives energy. It sustains life. Without it, all life on earth would immediately cease to exist. Though we're entirely dependent upon it, we cannot look upon it. Isn't that amazing? There's this object in the sky which you cannot look at and you're dependent on it for life. It's a continual reminder. There's one dwelling in the heavens who is called light that we cannot look upon in our sinful state though we're entirely dependent upon Him for everything. And then of course there's the moon. In my opinion, the moon is a tremendous correlation to us. The surface of the moon is barren and lifeless. It has no light of its own. It's only as its face is yielded to the piercing rays of the sun that it can reflect any light to be a help to others. You know, the moon only has one face. The same one's always pointing at us. There's an illustration for us, huh? Let's all have one face. And how about those dark spots on the moon? Well, those are craters that... Don't reflect light. You see, an outside influence has been permitted to conform the surface uh, to a different shape. And to the degree that's happened, light is deflected rather than reflected, which is exactly what our walking in sin does to us. It diminishes the light we reflect. I've been encouraged more than once by a crescent moon on on a clear night stare at it and think I remember sometime years ago it did just I was sitting there looking at the moon and it just encouraged me greatly because I, I was I was frustrated I want to be closer to God I want to be more of a conduit for his glory and I was just finishing up preaching at the prison and I thought how can I make these men understand why am I not closer to Christ and I'm sitting here staring at the moon and it was like it dawned on me you know that moon has a lot of room to grow as far as reflecting light. But the light it reflects is still giving light right now, even though we grieve about the lifelessness that remains. Every time I see a crescent moon now, I think of that. And I think it's true in our state. We ought to grieve about the growth that we need, yes. But don't think that if you're a Christian, you're not giving out some light. It's not true. 
And then the stars, it's like looking back in time. You look at the stars, you think these are the same ones Abraham gazed at. These stars effectively witnessed the great cloud of witnesses that went before. World events of history. All the Christians that have lived and suffered and bled and died and gone on. And then the principles of light in relation to men. There's just three of these. We'll go through them quickly. First of all, light is sure. Just like God said, let there be light, and there was light. And there still is. So Christ lights every man, present tense, lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now there is a theological nuance there. There is a difference between the general calling and the specific seizing upon with the work of the Holy Spirit. But all men are given some light directly by Christ that lights every man that comes into the world. He speaks of the Holy Spirit in John 16. Remember Christ had promised another comforter. You know in the Greek the word another, there's two words for that. There's alos and there's heteros. One of those means another of a different kind and one means another of the same exact kind. And he said I'll send another. It was an alos comforter. I'm going to send you a comforter exactly of the same essence as me. And what he's going to do is reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The heavens are still declaring the glory of God. According to Romans 1, the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. And there's still the written Word of God giving light. And of course, there's God's people. You and I are said to be the light of the world. So the light is sure. Secondly, the light is sovereignly distributed. Just consider for a moment the dispersal of sunlight in the natural world. There's places that get so much sunlight, they're cracked and scorched and hot and dusty. There's other places that are perpetually buried in ice. There's places that get a consistent 12 hours of sunlight every day. There's places, the further up toward the poles you get, that get down to total light and total dark, depending on the time of year. And even though the sun is always shining, somewhere in the natural world, we have to conclude that it's up to God's sovereign and perfect wisdom and choice that Although all the world gets some sun, not all the world gets the same amount or the same intensity or the same duration. It's just not the way God has ordained it. You know, it's true with Christ as the light of the world. If we have any real honest heart of compassion for our fellow men, we have to acknowledge we are a very, very blessed people. And we have to acknowledge that the same is true in the spiritual realm that not all people receive the same duration or intensity of spiritual light. There's nations in this world now that were once a lighthouse of gospel truth. And some of those have scarcely been a Christian there for centuries. There's some that have a long life and many chances. There's some that do not. There's some that are raised with the Bible in their homes. They're raised being taught and modeled what the Christian life looks like. And there's some that... Don't, and we may as well candidly face the question Is God unfair? No. Uh, there's many attempts to apologize here on God's behalf. Well, you know, 
God uh, does what He does, but mankind sort of messes it up. I agree, God is not the author of sin. But we must always remember, mankind's sinfulness ultimately can never, ever, ever override the sovereign purposes of God ultimately. It cannot. Or we have a far greater theological problem. God can stop things. But we have to remember His character. Does God want salvation for all men? Yes. Does God know the reaction people will give? Yes. I believe you can make a strong case in Acts 17 that God places people in the best place where they'll have a chance to be saved. He placed them there that happily they might seek after Him in whatever case. But we can't be afraid to say we don't have all the answers. We really don't. But the light is sovereignly dispersed. And thirdly, it's sufficient. You know, oftentimes we hear the statistic of how much visible light we actually see. The number is actually far less than we typically hear. If you put it in a percentage basis using all the ray of light, you know how much you actually see that's visible? On the real light scale, the full thing, we see one millionth of a percent of all light that possibly could be seen. All around us, all the time, there's a brilliant display of light and color that we're totally blind to. It's like the unseen attributes of God. There's things about God we don't know. There's things He's doing we don't see. You ever stop and think what Adam could have been able to see? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what will happen when he fell or those succeeding generations. But I suppose he had more ability than you and I. His sight, his hearing, his, his build, uh, all sorts of things. If we could see it all, when you turned on the microwave in your house, You'd see brilliant rays of color sailing across the room. Uh, you'd go outside here and you'd see radio waves shooting all across the sky. Different colors. Uh, you'd go to the doctor and they'd turn on the x-ray machine. You'd say, that's okay. I don't need the lead. I can see the light. Right? You'd be able to see the, the coloration. Even though we can't see all of that that's there, we still have sufficient light to go about our duties. Don't we? We only see a slender percentage of what could be seen, but we still have enough to function. The same is true in the spiritual realm. Mankind can only barely see what light God is, but it's sufficient to respond. We have sufficient evidence to know that unseen things are just as real. Somebody says, Well, how do you know there's microwaves? See the effects of it. How do you know there's a new birth? Because the wind bloweth where it listeth. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. You see the effect of divine life. But the light that God gives is sufficient to respond to. It's also sufficient to condemn. If we just flip over just a couple pages, verses we're very well familiar with. The end of the red section in John 3, that's verses... 19 through 21. What's the reaction from men's perspective? There's really only two, and they're highlighted here. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light, the life of God, has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, the condemnation wasn't there wasn't enough light. 
The condemnation is there is light. But it's men's reaction to it of suppressing it. You know, it's interesting. We like the sun, don't we? We get excited for the warmth to return. But we like the sun to a point. All of us that say we like the sun still have sunscreen, sunglasses, and sunshades. You see, the bottom line is, even though we can't control the light of the sun, even though we're dependent upon its rays, we do our best to keep its effects out of certain compartments of our life, don't we? Sunlight doesn't belong there. You know, most do the same thing with the light of God. Exact same thing. In the spiritual realm, they say, oh, God's fine. We love Jesus. He's all right. But they've got their sunglasses and their sunscreen and their sunshades. And when it's time to do darkness, the cover goes out. God's not allowed there. This is the condemnation. Men love darkness rather than light. The light can be suppressed or it can be stepped into. John 3.21 He that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds might be made manifest that they are wrought in God. A major part of our understanding when we come to believe in Christ is an acknowledgement that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. People cannot intelligently believe in Christ if they think their life is still hid from God. Coming to Him is likened to stepping into the light. Uh, That verse, by the way, is very true applicationally in our lives as Christians. Any dilemma we run into, it's a mental ping-pong game going back and forth about how to handle a certain situation. Remember, he that doeth truth cometh to the light. Never be afraid to step out in the full blaze of righteousness and err on the side of knowing you're not doing wrong. Instead of just wondering. God will bless that tremendously. And all of you children. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He sure wants every one of you to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But let's live as people of the light. There's so much more that can be said on this topic by the way. It's a massive topic. It's a fascinating one, but let's let's close. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us at least a glimpse through science, through nature, through observation. And Lord, I thank you that everywhere we look, there's not only tremendous wonder and beauty and functionality and power, but there's also spiritual applications that are astounding. I pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes to see these things and to teach our children as we go along in life. How many pictures there are of salvation? How many pictures there are of various parts of the Christian life? Help us, Lord, to be faithful as parents to bring these little ones to the cross. Help us, Lord, to step into the light in our daily life. Though the world may hate us, let us be known as those that manifest the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.